Baby, old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. Greetings, everyone. You are tuned in to The Hit Factory. It's a podcast about the movies of the 1990s. This is our inaugural episode. Uh, I'm Aaron Casillas. I'm Carly Gomes. We've got a special one today. It is the 1993 Sidney Pollock film starring Tom Cruise. It's The Firm. I've been dreaming about talking about this movie in an unbridled, open-fenced forum for nearly 20 years. (laughs) Well, today's the day. We're finally going to get to do that. Make your dreams come true. Dreams are coming true as we speak. (laughs) But I guess the first thing we should do, because this is a new thing for both of us, is talk about explicitly what the goal and aims of the show are. As I said, Hit Factory is a podcast dedicated exclusively to the films of the 1990s. And I think we should probably start by talking about what makes these films particularly special. Obviously, one of the things is you and I are both more or less 90s kids. Like We grew up and had our most formative years in the 1990s. I just want to give a shout out to the TikTok kids, the Gen Zers, who are already reading us They've top been- <laughs> to bottom right now. First of all, they're not listening to this. Secondly, it is like the most millennial thing ever. It's like a millennial snake eating itself to be like the two of us, who we are, <laughs> having a podcast about 90s movies. We are absolutely class- and uh, and age signaling by doing this particular thing. Yes, this is this is the millennial Ouroboros. This is the serpent devouring its own tail. We are a product of our upbringing and our generation and our generation. And you know what the thing about it is? Is no one is above that. No. You all are listening right now because you too saw oh a podcast about the 1990s. I'm in. Clickbait. <laughs> but so let's talk a little bit about. The films of the 1990s and why they're so fascinating. The thing to me that that makes the 1990s such an, an interesting time is because it was the last time any of us felt good. After that, like the aughts brought us like the George W. Bush presidency and 9/11 and the war on terror. And after that was the Obama years and then the rise giant of the, recession. The giant recession, the 2008 financial crisis, the Tea Party. We've got the current moment. The entire reason this thing exists right now is because. We are stuck indoors, uh, avoiding uh, spreading a global pandemic. That is very much the result of a failed global collective effort. And so I say that almost as a joke, you know, the 1990s were the last time anything felt good, but it's also the truth. And if you look at the numbers and statistics of it, it's also the last time that the nation as a whole had this feeling of, feeling good. It's one of the things that is such a marker and product of the 90s, like bills in the White House, uh, the stock markets are going up, unemployment is low, like the Dow is just like skyrocketing. Everything is like on the up and up. And a thing that's so fascinating about that is that even though the economy was, was really doing well, people felt like we were doing well, Excess and abundance was like a part of everyday life for a lot of people of a particular class. 
and sect of people in society, you know, in, in America, it was a facade. Well, yeah, I mean, when you said the nation as a whole was feeling good, it's like the top layer. It's like the mid to top layer that was feeling good, right? Everyone else in the country, you've had the Rodney King riots, you've got crack just like ruling the streets. And getting you jail sentences 100 times longer than powdered cocaine. Jail sentences 100 times longer than Wall Street sugar babies. <laughs> and, um, but for us, who, you know, were privileged enough to have a semi-normal middle-class suburban life, Yes, there was a feeling of, you know, one great nation celebrating the hard work of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yes. And I think all of that stuff speaks to the culture that bore these particular movies. Hollywood felt that excess. Hollywood felt that uh, booming economy and that sort of like, we can never die, everything is awesome, the nation is doing great, and reflected that back to us in the kinds of movies that Hollywood made. It is all a facade, but it is also a thing that paved the way for a decade's worth of just unbridled imagination and a ton of studio bucks behind it too, where we got all these movies that, yes, are amazing, but also really fascinating artifacts of a time and of a place and the ways in which these movies are either a defense of that time and place or a denunciation of that time and place make them just ripe with opportunity to just analyze them in that cultural context. You've got all those like national flexing movies, Patriot Games, Air Force One, you know, all of those, right? And then you have the other side of the coin that's like your Matrix, your... Um, you know, fifth element, whatever, right? right? That's like... The, the, the rallying against and, and the fighting the system kind of thing, you know, the oppressors, right? Like right. it's like, oh, and I mean, that's a pretty fascinating point that you just made first and foremost, which is the early 90s, right? Like from like 92 up until 96, 97, you've got this feeling of like a love for our country, a love for the military, for our law enforcement, it's for all of these people. It's a celebration. It is a celebration of the nation. And then at the end of the era, you have these people starting to say, take the red pill. Like, open your eyes. All of this is a, is a dream and it's not real. And the world underneath it is something much more dire and urgent and needs addressing. And I think the other side of that coin, too, is the consumer side. The consumer side of movies in the 90s is that there was... In the home, this, you know, pervasive feeling of thriving and success and comfort and stability. And that led to a thirst and a need to consume. We were very active and voracious consumers in the 90s, those that had the means to be. And one of the things that we consumed and the way that we celebrated our collective feeling good was going to movies going to movies every fucking weekend this is also mind you an era that just predates the advent of digital technology and streaming services so 
we didn't have the capacity for to stay home and watch Netflix. We didn't have the capacity to stay home and stream YouTube. We didn't have the capacity to to uh, just rent something that was new and fresh. And there were less people making it. You know, like not everyone had access to you know a two thousand uh, dollar like red or something where they could go out and make a movie with their friends on a shoestring budget and have it have a studio professional quality. Even in like the indie circuit in the nineties, things had to make their rounds at festivals like mm-hmm. Sundance or or you know TIFF and all this stuff. And those movies gained an audience. Uh, because of the word of mouth from that critical circle and then because of home video too. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's this, the interesting thing about the 90s is like, you know, when we were going through the lists of like the movies that came out each year and I was just thinking to myself and remarking out loud, there were that many fucking movies made that year. Oh my God, Tom Cruise did five movies that year, whatever it is. The, it, it's, it was this interesting energy of just, jam-packing the 365 days in a year with releases. But then on the other hand, the life cycles of these movies lasted much longer. So I could see the firm in theaters, and then I could definitely get it on home video a year later. And then I could probably, two years later, for sure see it on TNT. Right. And it's the reason why I think so many of these movies have a more enduring cultural legacy. And it's a thing that we talk about and decry all the time about like the current landscape of media consumption, which is nothing holds the collective attention the way a movie like a Pulp Fiction did, the way a movie like mm-hmm. The Matrix did, the way a movie like you know a Fight Club did for a certain number of people. Like those movies remain in the collective consciousness because that life cycle and gestation period happened over the course of like the better part of a year. And then several years after on television and, and, and in repeats with like HBO and things like that. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Movies are in theaters for a run. They're on demand or, or streaming within like another 30 to 60 days after that. And people will watch them and revisit them. But we talk about them and then at the same time as something comes out in a theater that we all collectively want to engage with, there are like six different programs at home on a streaming service for us to talk about. It just, it's just this barrage of things all the time and nothing gets to, nothing is permitted that cultural foothold the way movies in this era were. Well, not to mention there are 19,000 articles written about every single thing that gets made. So in general, there was less media to consume. So a movie could take up more space in your brain. But yes, it was also that the footprint was longer, deeper, and left a larger left a left a more discreet mark on your consciousness and on your memory and your experience completely and you already alluded to this but when we were looking at like 1996 in film i picked a random year just in in the decade and every week there was at least one film where we were just like holy shit that's a hit and then the following week, it's like, that's a hit. And in a lot of weeks, it was like all three of those things are bangers. Hence the name. Hence the name. Hit Factory. In the 1990s were a collective Hollywood hit factory. And so these movies just kind of stick in a way that a lot of them from other eras don't. Right. I was buying DVDs of all of the movies that I loved from the 90s, The Firm, Philadelphia, what have you, in the early aughts. Totally. 
and still watching those movies after I had already just spent the last 10 years watching those movies. Exactly. And it was just like, it was technology evolving and these films being the first ones to evolve with it. It was a hit factory. And so I think that's a good segue into the movie we want to talk about today. It is The Firm. It was released in 1993. We're going to go by the numbers here a little bit and talk about stats. Are you ready for this? Yep. Okay. Directed by Sidney Pollack, great filmmaker, unstoppable, more or less, in the 80s and 90s. Do you want to hear his run? Please tell me. All right. Started at the beginning of the 80s with Absence of Malice, James Caan and Sally Field. Mm. You may not have seen this one, but as a former journalism student, I have seen this movie more times than I can count. And I have seen it more times than I want to. Not a bad movie. Just soured at this point because of how much I've seen it. After that, Tootsie. Great movie. Great movie. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman doing Problem, the most. Problematic. But problematic a great movie. these days, which is the case with most 90s movies. 80s movie. Eight, 80s and 90s movies. After that, rounded out the, the decade in 86 with Out of Africa. Love a good bathroom yeah. scene. Love a good bathroom scene. And then uh, came into the 90s with this film, The Firm, in 1993. 95, he uh, did his remake of Sabrina. Also an excellent 90s also movie. Also an excellent 90s movie. We'll probably do it at some point. Um, but this one is sort of his 90s uh, tour de force, if you will. It's so forced. It is, it is a lot of force. It's a lot. Particularly with its leading man, Tom fucking Cruise. Tom fucking Cruise. Is there a, is there a stronger uh, 90s fighter to pick? Than Tom Cruise. Hardest working man in show business for literally the last 40 years. Last 40 years. And this is something that I also took a look at because this is insane. And I want to just give a li- The only other person I could see matching him going head to head in terms of just quality of film is Denzel. And then we've talked about that before. But, but, but less quantity. But less quantity. Here's, what, here's the thing with Tom Cruise. The movies that he had made before The Firm... And this is just a, a, a best of. I am omitting a handful of films here. Are you ready? 1981, Taps. 1983, The Outsiders and Risky Business. 1986, The Color of Money and Top Gun. Mm. Okay. 1988, Cocktail and Rain Man. 89, Born on the Fourth of July, Oliver Stone. Going into slightly more serious territory there. Uh, 1990, Days of Thunder, reuniting with Tony Scott, more or less making the same movie. It is Top Gun with Cars. It's Top Gun, it's Cocktail, <laughs> it's, it's all of them. In 1992, right before this film, A Few Good Men. Rob Reiner, Aaron Sorkin written, starring alongside Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore. He literally could have retired then. He could have retired then and he would have been fine. And here's another thing I want to talk about too before we actually get into the meat of this because it should be, it should be said right out front here. We fucking love Tom Cruise. Hardest working man in show business. If you don't love Tom Cruise, you're going to hate this fucking show. It's not about... (laughs) It's not about Scientology, And it's not about him as a person. It is about the man being an expert and fully, fully committed entertainer. He is, hands down, in front of the camera and behind it, one of the... Like, he... His star power and just the energy and intensity he brings to things makes every movie better. I would argue that he is the last 
Hollywood superstar. I want to get into one thing about Tom Cruise just because I, I really want you to understand the magnitude of how fucking badass this guy is and how unstoppable a force he is, even like just in one decade. We already talked about some of his films in the 80s, the films that he did right before this. Like you said, he could have retired them. Here's his 1990s run. Are you ready? 19- no, I'm not were, ready. No one is ready. <laughs> no one can be fucking ready for Tom. 1990, Days of Thunder, we already talked about. Top Gun Part 2 with cars, right? Uh, he did another one shortly thereafter, and I believe it was 92, the same year as A Few Good Men, uh, called Far and Away. Just another one with him and Nicole. The only box office bomb he has in the entire decade. In his spare time. Throwaway. The throwaway only movie. one that, <laughs> that doesn't do well critically and commercially. A Few Good Men, we said 1992. He does this movie we're talking about, The Firm. He does Interview with the Vampire. Which oh. are the which are the two star making people together? I Brad forgot Pitt they were Tom in a movie Cruise. together. I think about that movie and I think of Tom Cruise. I don't think you don't of think Brad about Brad Pitt. Pitt. Well, there you go. I think about Tom Cruise and I think about Kirsten Dunst. There you go. Here's here's the end of the last half of the decade. Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia. Done. Every single one of those shut movies it down. is a fucking hit, except for of course, like we said, Far and Away. I don't know. I'd watch Far and Away. We will watch Far and Away. What I'm saying is it's the only one that wasn't, at the time of its release, a commercial and critical success. It was his night school movie. He did it in his spare time. <laughs> it was it like... It was one that he did so he could start banging Nicole Kidman. Totally. It is literally, it's the second movie he was in together with her. It was... He totally did it because he just like... He, was, he wanted to fuck. Like, that's what he wanted and he succeeded. So... At that point, it was likely her agent saying... Hey, we need you to ride the coattails of this dude. Can you get these two in a movie together? <laughs> and it's and get them in a movie they did three times in the decade. And they were a Hollywood power couple. Hollywood power couple. Okay, we actually need to talk about The Firm. We should actually talk about The Firm. Let's get into The Firm. Carly, I have only seen this movie with you. I've only seen it twice now. But you came to me with this movie a year or two years ago for the first time. And you really, really enjoy this movie. But there's also something you told me about it. You prefaced my experience with the movie by talking about it in a very specific way. You you had a read on it. You gave it a particular label. And I want you to talk a little bit about what that is. It's important to wear these glasses when you watch this movie. Two words. Psychotically white. <laughs> this movie is completely and utterly full throttle psychotically white and it's one of those things that i didn't understand when i was watching it as a kid but as i got older and started to understand the trappings of privilege of white privilege and of my own privilege it is impossible to ignore when you are watching this movie and it wears that privilege and that excess on its sleeve in some ways that were borderline horrifying when we watched it when we watched it this last time i think we were just and because we're in the current climate and the in the moment too we had like a particular sensitivity to this but there is not a single person of color in this movie who isn't in like a service role like they are either like a servant or a maid there are there are two men of color who even have like speaking roles in this film. One of them is the FBI agent who is 
like second to Ed Harris. And one of them is the actor who plays uh, A-Banks, the guy who owns like the, the boat mm. shop in the Caymans. Mm-hmm. But they are the only two people who are like men of color who have any sort of influence whatsoever in the film. And it would be one thing if this movie was just full of white people, but it's not just full of white people. It is full of white people and black people like as secondary characters just populating the scenes. Right. It's peppered with black people. They're hardly there on screen. And when they are, they're there functionally. They're not there to like you know, bring anything. And they are is, cleaning houses. They are cleaning they houses. They are pouring wine. They are serving hors d'oeuvres at like a garden party on like a plantation house. It is wild. It is. And that is one of like a thousand reasons that this movie is psychotically white. And I don't love it for that, for those reasons. But, but what I love about it is, is just how much of a fucking romp it is and how ridiculous it is. The movie is completely and utterly ridiculous as is its main character and all of the characters that surround him. It's just like, it's so much. And it's, it's so much. It, and before we get further, we should say it is a John Grisham adaptation, which makes it probably one of the most 90s things ever. In fact, when I, when I was looking this up, the, the weekend that this movie came out, John Grisham... And, of course, Michael Crichton had collectively all six of the of the top six movies that on tracks. the New York Times bestsellers that list. Tracks. And that they, tracks. And they split them evenly. John had three and Mike had three. I don't know which ones they were and I don't know who had the top spot. But John Grisham and Michael Crichton adaptations are peak fucking 90s. Middle class white people in America in the 90s were going to movies that were adaptations of the books they were reading at home. That's exactly what it is. Reading like on the toilet, like in an airplane. Like that's that's the kind of books that they're reading and what they were going to see adaptations of. Can I just say, and we're not gonna, you know, belabor each scene or frame as I am about to at the onset, but I just need to say, I am, my point is proven about how psychotically white this movie is in literally the first frame of the movie, the first frame of this movie, the first sort of real thing that you see and become aware of is a fucking crew team on a lake somewhere. Six Jonathans and Kenneths fully decked out in their polos and their sweaters, (laughs) crewing early in the morning because that is what white people do. I almost forgot about that. Like, it is... It is a piano score that is itself quite 90s. Like, it's kind of like a little swingy jazzy, but it sounds like the kind of stuff that is, like, palatable to very crispy people, like, in a bistro. There's a little... Yeah, it's bistro piano music. It totally is. It's 90 bistros piano music where, you know, you're having a mescaline salad. (laughs) It's... it's, I think the other thing that's, that's so interesting about this movie and another reason that I think speaks to its psychotic whiteness is the score specifically kind of nuts like the piano yes in and of itself is at times tonally appropriate but most of the time isn't like oftentimes there's something sort of dark and sinister happening on screen and then we sway away to whatever you know next portion of the story we're moving to and in that transition there's like hoppy, bouncy, 
almost like romantic comedy piano music. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. And like a good product of whiteness, it refuses to play second fiddle to anything, forces its way into the front, and demands that you just pay attention to it. Jamming itself in there. Any it just, anytime there's anytime there's white space, it's like it's nope. Bing 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 bing. Yeah. That's all it does, is just that. Uh, it should be noted though, while we're while we're ripping on the score a little bit, it is one of two things that uh, received accolades during awards season. While we're we're gonna go back to some numbers just really quickly. Holly Hunter, excellent in this movie, only has about six minutes of screen time. Oscar nominated in the Best Supporting Actress category for this role. Did not win. Lost to Anna Paquin that year for the piano. Oh. The the one that everyone belabors. The one that everyone belabors. (laughs) And here's the funny thing. Holly Hunter still took home an Oscar that year in the Best Actress category, also for the piano. So she was nominated in both categories and lost this one, but won the bigger award. Um, and then the only other thing that was nominated at the Oscars that year was Dave Grusin's score uh, in the original score category. Loses to, I guarantee you can guess it, Carly. I have no idea. Who do you think the composer was? John Williams. It's absolutely John Williams. But for what? 93. Jurassic Park. Wasn't Jurassic Park. The other Spielberg movie. Was that the year of Schindler's List? It was. Really? Yes, Dave Grusin lost. We had The Firm and Schindler's List in the same year? In the same... Well, we had Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year from the same director, which is another thing entirely. This is why we're having... We have a podcast about 90s movies. There's just too much much to talk about. But let's get into some of the other stuff. This movie has everybody in it. Hal Holbrook's in it. David Strathairn's in this. Holly Hunter, like we mentioned before. Ed Harris. Ed Harris is in it being excellent. Uh, Gary Busey being the most Busey anyone has ever seen him outside of him just... In, like, I watched it and I was like, Gary Busey's not acting here. Like, I think that they just told him he was a private investigator and let him go. He just came on set, did his thing for two minutes, and then popped he's, out of there. He's literally in the movie for less time than Holly Hunter is. He's there long enough to be, like, a creepy, coked-out private investigator. Uh, he's there to get the start of a blowjob from Holly Hunter, and then there to get shot by Tobin Bell... Uh, with a terrifying, like, white, bleached white wig on. And uh, and Hank from Breaking Bad is the other guy, and the two of them collectively kill Gary Busey in his second scene. I think another characteristic of 90s movies, one, the first that we've discussed so far being, well, we've discussed a lot of them. Psychotic whiteness, uh, it's got to be a Michael Crichton or a John Grisham adaptation. But I think the other thing that marks... A 90s movie is just how jam-packed with stars they are. It's full of... Literally, everybody in this movie is somebody noteworthy. Totally. You've got a lot of great B-actors, too. I didn't even mention the fact that Gene Hackman is in this movie yet. He's excellent in this movie, too. But, yes, so, like, the one thing I want to talk about in terms of this movie is you already said there is a psychotic level of whiteness. It is a John Grisham adaptation, which is one of the most 90s things that can be done. You've got a full-fledged cast of solid character actors who all have gone on to do awesome things or are already doing awesome things in this era. One of the other things about this is what we talked about already, which is just like everything in it is just like opulence and excess. This movie starts in that way, right? And, And beyond that, it embodies this like sense of rugged individualism that was so prevalent during the era too. 
1000%. And I think there's, there is no denying that the movie is fraught with the trappings of privilege and fraught with the trappings of the notion, the markers that we would attribute to rugged individualism. And that's like, you know, cardigans, yes, but also law degrees and, you know, ties and cars and certain types of conversations and vacations and all of those things. One of the things that you're you're making me realize about this movie that I think I felt while I was watching it is this movie is fascinating for all of the things that it is as well as the things that it is not. For example? Well, this movie is one that, you know, to, to succinctly say it is about Tom Cruise uh, as this hotshot young lawyer who gets a great job for an awesome firm in the middle of Memphis, this little boutique firm. They give him a car. They give him a house. They furnish the house. They give him all the trappings of, like, this idea of idyllic perfection for, like, the American dream. And then he comes to find that his employers actually work for the mob and money launder and do something illegal. And by the time that people figure this out, they've already got them exactly where they want them. Uh, everyone is, is already so in this game and in this cycle that they can't escape. But the thing that this movie doesn't ever do is look at or criticize in any way that desire for that opulence. Like it is not an indictment of those particular excesses or the desire for them. No. In fact, it's the thing that says like, everyone should want these things. If there's an indictment at all, it's that these things were being used nefariously. Totally. To trap him and to make him beholden to the firm. But not that the things themselves are things that he shouldn't want. Although you could make the argument that at the end of the movie, when they decide to give it all up and drive on back to Boston in their beat up car, that they are kind of taking the moral high ground. And there are a couple of moments within the movie when Jean Triplehorn, who is who plays Tom Cruise's wife, Mitch McDear's wife. Abby McDear. Abby McDear pleads with him, beseeches with him, let's give it all up. Let's go back to Boston. Let's order a pizza like we used to. We don't eat pizza anymore. <laughs> We're too rich for pizza. We're too rich for pizza. <laughs> um, so, so I would maybe disagree with you a little bit and say that there is the movie is sort of fecklessly trying to have an undercurrent of critique against the desire for these things, but not necessarily directing it in a way that is, you know, targeted precisely at the systems or or the things themselves, but more just placing it within the specifics of these circumstances. Like, I don't think the movie was saying, if you're going to be a good person like Mitch McDear, you're going to not want these things. And you're going to go back to Boston. You're going to teach elementary school kids and like practice law for like, you know, the underserved communities of Boston, whatever. I don't think it's saying that. I think it's more just saying these two people had their taste and are better than that. And they're going back to a life that is not as complicated. And that is, as I said, a moral 
a moral high ground from where they were. You bring up two really interesting things that I want to talk about. One of them is the way that this movie handles and the way that Mitch McDeer handles taking down the mob or, or working with the FBI, right? Like the whole situation here is the FBI start questioning him and... Uh, well, meet, they come to him and blackmail him, essentially. More or less, they blackmail him. They, they, they force him and coerce him into cooperating with them to help them get to the mob bosses, the Moralto crime family that uh, his law firm, Bendini, Lambert, and Locke, uh, are aiding and abetting. But the thing that's so funny about this is like they put him in a situation, first and foremost, where he realizes that helping them uh, means that he is uh, in breach of attorney-client privilege and realizing that he will get disbarred for doing the right thing. So the movie finds a way for Mitch to do all of this and take down the law firm uh, in a RICO case, Hollywood's favorite, favorite uh, kind of indictment. Of the 90s. Of the 90s. For sure. Without, he gets to do all of this without losing his law degree. He gets to do everything without ever breaking the law. He gets to do everything without ever breaking the law. And he also gets to be the thing that they posit him to be from the very first frame that we see him, which is singular and extraordinary. And extraordinary. And the reason we know he is singular and extraordinary by the first frame is because he is a runner in a world of walkers. He is, he is <laughs> literally running through a crowd of sleepy Harvard Law students in their crispy button downs and sweaters, hopping over people, yelping, scooting this way, scooting that way. Right. And we know that he is extraordinary. We have that, that visual cue that tells us this person is, we're meant to know that this person is special. Cause he's running. Cause he's running. He also uh, best a little boy on the streets of Memphis well, in, in, a, in a, a flipping contest later yes. on. But my favorite scene of this particular thing is also one of the most Hollywood scenes in the movie. It's when Hal Holbrook and his associates from Bandini, Lambert and Locke first meet Mitch and give him his offer letter to work at the firm. He doesn't open it and asks what's in it. And Hal no, tells I believe, him- I believe what he says is, did you guys have an offer in mind? I think you're right there. But Hal Holbrook's character effectively says, any lawyer worth the offer doesn't need to open that envelope. And then it goes into what is perhaps like the most architected Hollywood version of like a line of questioning and it's like a thing that like simpletons will follow along with that we're supposed to believe makes him like an exceptional lawyer. And really all he asks is uh, to the to the other partner at the firm, like, did he tell you any specific things about uh, about the offer? And he's like, yes. And he says, what were they? And he says, oh, I was supposed to take the highest offer and double it. And that's supposed to prove to us that he is an exceptional lawyer. But, you know, I got to say... I love that scene. It's a great scene. You're 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 reducing it down because of its of how ridiculous and like building blocky it is. Yes, but I also think that that scene is one of is one of the examples of what I think this movie does well, which is like take its ridiculousness and you know wrap it in a bunch of flair to make it entertaining. And when Tom Cruise is on the screen, 
it is entertaining. It no is always entertaining. No matter what is going on. I loved every minute of this movie. Totally. But it's just... But even the corniest of scenes where you're like, Jesus Christ, you're still like, Jesus Christ! And they are multitudinous. They are multitudinous. The corny scenes They are here. one right after the other. One of the things that you talked about was Tom Cruise running. He does this uh, a lot. You, you, so you had a theory that you gave to me sort of after, or probably while we were watching it, because there are a couple of key, key things here. We already know Tom Cruise and his legacy of doing these kinds of movies where he is like this very special young man who like is, is the best and the brightest, right? But this movie also like graphs onto this traditional Tom Cruise movie, a lot of running, there are definitely some DIY stunts. He like jumps out of a window onto like a, a truck full of cotton, cotton or, or pillows or something. It's cotton. It's cotton. Yep. Uh, and you told me while we were watching this, you said this is the origin of the modern day Tom Cruise action hero. Like this is Ethan Hunt. I've seen this movie, I want to say 14 times. This was the time that it clicked for me where I, I hadn't thought about the literal acrobatics that happen at the end of this movie as anything other than shoveling onto the pile of ridiculousness that this movie is. But as we were watching it, I sort of noticed the, the kind of ramping up that they do with Tom Cruise's character, Mitch McDeer, and thought about that in the context of his actual career and how this movie, one could argue, is a little bit of a microcosm of the arc of his career. It's like a, it's a, you know, zoomed in version of that where he starts as the Tom Cruise from Top Gun and a little bit of Rain Man because there's some seriousness. Yes. Right? Um, he's very Charlie Babbitt in certain parts of this. He's very, he's very Charlie Babbitt. There's some romance, you know, involved. But as the movie moves on, it the tension, the faux tension of the movie ratchets up. And the, the sort of ampedness of all of the characteristics of Mitch, of Mitch McDeer get ratcheted up too. And you end with a Tom Cruise that has literally, not metaphorically, but also metaphorically, <laughs> launched himself into an action career. Into an action career. He jumps out of windows. He like somersaults around on shit. And there's even a moment, and it's, it's coming to me now, one of like the key moments and, and, and sort of apexes of the final chase scene in this movie with like Wilford Brimley huffing and puffing alongside. Huffing and puffing. Just doing the most huffing alongside Tobin Bell while they're out to kill him is Tom... Uh, hanging from like pipes in the rafters, uh, trying not to be detected so he can swing down and subdue them. But do you notice that there's a moment where there's like a thing where he's afraid he, that he's going to give himself away where sweat's dropping off of him and hitting the ground. And I watched it and I was like, this is the Langley heist. This is the Langley this heist. This is exactly what happens in the Langley heist. <laughs> The sweat dripping down, like him hanging from something, like trying not to be detected while someone's walking underneath him, like is exactly a thing. One thousand percent. He like stole, hacked out, and grafted onto the Brian De Palma movie. That that sort of back third of the movie is Tom Cruise 
becoming and fully running into the action star that we know him to be. The movie is is does its job in the sense that it gets us there in a way that doesn't cause whiplash, right? We're there and we know why we're there. We know why the stakes are what they are. We know why he's hopping on pipes and, you know, jumping onto trucks out of law firms. <laughs> we know why and we are there with him. But I I was very conscious, especially you and I having had other conversations about his star power and about his DIY stunts and, and all of the things that make him a really fantastic entertainer. I was, I was so much more acutely aware of the ways in which this movie really does launch him into that. And I think the turning point of the movie where that happens, that back third where he becomes a little bit more Tom Cruise action star, is the first time we actually get to see him run, run. So in the beginning of the movie, he's we open on him hopping and bopping and weaving through you know a crowd of, like I said, sleepy Harvard law students. He does some running here and there. He does some backflips with you know right. a lovely black child from the streets. He runs to to chase down Gene Triplehorn at one point in the street. So that, but that's like the, that's like the moment. Right? That's the turning point that I'm talking about. It's when they uncover that they are being recorded in their house. They're being bugged by they're the law being firm. bugged by the law firm, and all of this, you know, sort of opulence and pleasure and comfort comes crashing down on them. And Jean runs out because they were having a conversation, a whisper conversation over cranked up 90s soft rock. In one of the best scenes in the movie, the music's just blasting and it's just like a close-up of Tom's lips just whispering into Jean Triplehorn's ear. And, and then her- a reverse shot of her just, her face just turning into pure horror. And she shakes her head, no. <laughs> no. She can't believe it. But they can't do 10 minutes of that, right? right? So they had to get those fuckers out of the house. Yes. So she runs out she in runs fright. out in, in just absolute horror and he clocks after her and he's running down the street and it's the first time I think in any... I don't remember it in Top Gun. No. I don't remember it He's in on a any, motorcycle doing it in that like wide shot. This right. is the first one where you see that like he is completely upright running like Tom Cruise running. Yes. He's he's pumping, he's kicking his legs up, his arms are flailing like And that is the turning point of the movie when not only the physicality of his role changes, but the emotional and kind of like psychological tension of the movie shifts as well. And his character is born anew like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Indicated by one of the last scenes in the movie when he confronts the members of the Moralto crime family. And you said this to me while we were watching, you're like, now he is officially like late era Tom Cruise. There's just so much more assurance to him. And he's like two steps ahead of everybody. And he's a little bit wacky. He's a little wacky. He's a little crazy eyed. He's a little crazy. He's doing that thing where like his lower jaw kind of like juts out, but he knows what the fuck is up. He's got everyone's number. And he is just owning the scene and chewing everything up. And it is all those moments in the movies where he is just that completely competent, like, 
awesome action hero. But also kind of like like a little wily. A little right? wily. It's and, it's, and a, it's, it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, fuse, right? Or or like a, a kind of like a, a hot wire. That's what it is. It's totally a and hot wire. And he's just like sparking, but there's so much energy running through him. It doesn't matter. You just know he's a live wire. But it's different. It's different than the energy and the charisma and the, you know, just magnetic presence that he has in those other movies. That I would argue he's he's very much just as kinetic and and charismatic in those in those roles and in those movies but it's different it is different than action star tom cruise which is where he lands squarely or at least one foot in the square at the end of this movie um we should shift gears and talk about someone other than tom cruise for a moment can we yes i want to talk about Really, all of the secondary cast, but specifically someone I know you love in this movie, who is Jean Triplehorn. She does a lot, not with a little, but she does a lot. They and don't she, like many female wives, like like many. That's redundant. Like many female characters cast as wives or girlfriends in '90s movies, she doesn't do a whole lot well, other than to be there to buttress the. The main character. Right. And and even when they give her agency, it is done uh, with the ultimate goal of aiding the protagonist, with aiding Mitch, right? But that's when things really get interesting at the end of this movie, when Tom uh, reveals to Abby at a dinner his infidelity. Because he has slept with a woman on a beach in the Grand Caymans during a trip. Who sprained her ankle Who for him. Who sprained her ankle for him. <laughs> she's sprained a, it just so she could help him. She's a he damsel in distress and he has to he has to go there. But uh, he realizes that this uh, tryst, this rendezvous of sorts, has been caught on camera by the firm and is now being used to blackmailing him into cooperation. We should say prior to us talking about this scene and how fantastic Jean is in it, that she has some other great moments in the movie, but they are by and large her reacting to something, like being told that the firm encourages babies. and It's a very Stepford Wives kind of thing. And is okay, finger quotes, with with women having jobs. Um, you can have a job if you want to. I she's think. reacting to Tom's lateness of the hour. She's reacting to, you know, being stood up, whatever. She's she's often responding to something and she's there to move the scene along and to give Tom something to do, right? And she does a fine job of that. She's beautiful and she is grounded and she's meant to be, you know, someone that comes from money. But the thing that I love about her in this movie is that she never feels she's the she's kind of the most, dare I say it, like real character she of is. all of them. And she's the one that responds the most realistically. You to would things. you would think that if we knew about her that she comes from money and she has, you know, all of these typical expectations of what her husband should be and do, that they would really lean into that, but they don't really. She is a grounding force for him. 
they don't really give her any trappings of like being a person from money like the way that a movie would like any of those calling cards we only know that because tom talks about it once or twice she doesn't you know, have an air about her. She loves pizza. She loves pizza and takeout. And takeout. Just loves Chinese all, the, all the, the great 90s staples of, of She's got a shaggy diner. dog. A shaggy dog. But anyways, she's, she's not doing a whole lot other than really being lovely and grounded and wonderful leading up to And being mistreated by Tom's, uh, Tom's uh, work schedule and all the things that go along with it, right? Being mistreated by the firm. But... At the point when Tom finally reveals his infidelity, that dinner scene and the response is like maybe the best scene in the movie, just like best written, best performed. And it's like one of the few like kind of nuggets of like, oh, this is a scene that is way better than the movie as a whole. That scene, I am watching a different movie. It's a different movie. (laughs) For like the three minutes that that scene is happening, I am feeling and thinking different things than I am in the entirety of the rest of the movie. And it's a, yes, it's a much it's, more it's, it's very standout. rounded, serious movie. And she does some stuff at the end to aid uh, Mitch in his dealings, specifically with another great performer and another great character in here, uh, Avery Toller, who is played by Gene Hackman. She goes with Avery to the Caymans um, in an attempt to sort of seduce him and lure him to his room and drug him and help Mitch and uh, by proxy Holly Hunter get access to some files that he needs. And this is another part of the movie that takes an interesting turn because there's this mentor sort of thing, this mentorship kind of thing happening between uh, Avery and Mitch and it becomes antagonistic. And then at the end here, he has this interesting redemption and it makes him kind of a sympathetic character where he like, realizes what's happened to him and and sort of lets lets it lets it go and he's like this is okay and there's a lot of like self-loathing in him there's a lot of pain and it's like they they wait almost too long to oh, reveal this in the movie they, they wait way too long <laughs> because it's like his last like jam-pack. like 2 minutes of screen time over like a two and a half hour movie where I, all of a sudden he's just like becomes a very complex and interesting character And I think there are hints at him being a complex and interesting character earlier in the movie, but only as a result of Gene Hackman playing him. Gene Hackman, Not because he was written that way. I will say they do a little bit of legwork on the, like, making him more sympathetic angle in the preceding moments where they are at dinner, where uh, Abby McDear and Avery are at dinner, and... He's, of course, just beaming that she's there and that she's come for him. Um, but he he opens up to her and he, you know, self-flagellates a little bit a here lot. and there. And, um, and, you know, asks very pointed questions of her. And she responds very honestly. And he receives the honest responses. And so we're... We're already kind of like the ground is softening beneath us a little bit leading up to, you know, the end of their interaction mm-hmm. where he kind of lets her go. So I, I felt like they did they did a decent job, you know, making him a little bit more sympathetic. But up until that point, he's just utterly ruthless. I will say the one other time that they 
vaguely signal that he has somewhat of a heart is when the firm finds out that Mitch has been talking to the FBI. Right. Um, and he tries to convince them that it's okay, he's trustworthy, like, do what you need to do to, to surveil him and make sure that he's, like, in place, but this is a good kid. This is a good kid. He came here. He told us about it. I believe him. Yep. And he, he just comes off as this character who is just, like, in too deep, right? Like, he's, like, a genuinely good person who's been just, like, ruined and downtrodden and destroyed by, like, the system that he serves. But he's also, when you think about it, the thing that actually enables the entire narrative arc of the movie. <laughs> like, Avery being there and being who he is is the thing that moves the movie forward. Totally. It's the very reason why... Uh, the characters succeed and also why the antagonists fail in yes. a lot of, in a lot of like, otherwise Mitch would have been dead. He becomes such an interesting, sympathetic character. Again, like you said, played masterfully by Gene Hackman. This whole movie is full of just like amazing character, like actors and, and great performances with material that's like, a, like a little lukewarm, but, but like it, they do so much with it. It's time and time again. It's, it's a little lukewarm. Another thing you could say about it is that it's fucking crispy. Like it's so crispy. The dialogue is so crispy. It's so white. It's so waspy. Even. Waspy. It's so <laughs> John Grisham. It. I mean, the movie feels like if I were reading it on an airplane, I'd be having the time of my life. And that's exactly what it seeks to do, and it does a great job of it. It does! And I think Sidney Pollock is, like, the perfect person to do this kind of movie because it has all the trappings of his other kinds of movies, which is, like, a little bit of levity, but, like, interesting characters and good actors, and, like, it it, it, it snaps right along. It does not feel like a two-and-a-half-hour movie. No. It's definitely snappy. I've got one more thing to talk about just as a whole in terms of the movie. And then I've got an interesting thing, that, uh, a, a sort of uh, test that I want to take with us. In between those two things, I'm going to do a sound off of all of the visual and prop and sonic cues of this movie that are psychotically white and 90s. Roll it. No, we, we got to talk about this other thing first. In between okay. those two, I said. Okay. I want to talk about Mitch McDeer as a character and because we said something earlier about Mitch being quote unquote the good guy or a good guy, but is Mitch McDeer a good guy? This movie seems, I think I, I turned to you at one point during this watching this movie and said, Mitch McDeer is a sociopath. And it was, it was in this scene right after one of, or two of the, the firm's, uh, uh, lawyers are found dead, right? There's a horrible, quote-unquote, boat accident. And we later learn that they were, like, killed at the behest of the partners because they were trying to leave uh, and could potentially expose the crime family that they work for. But they go to the funeral, and Mitch doesn't really say much to anybody. Abby has an exchange with Avery where he kind of flirts with her, and she tells him, like, oh, you must be grieving horribly. And he's like, well... People grieve in different ways. Great moment. But at the end of it, Abby and Mitch are driving away, and I don't remember the joke now, but Mitch, the first thing he says like in the entire scene is some like kitschy joke 
that gets them both laughing on the way home from a funeral at the expense of the people that they were just like mourning. After Abby, for the first few minutes of the car ride, is clearly shaken and is and is sort of looking for an emotional response from He him. doesn't console her. No. He just like edges the conversation towards this weird joke. And she eventually laughs, but also like in so many instances of this movie, it is very clear that Mitch doesn't have like necessarily like a a very well developed emotional compass for how to do the right thing or how to respond appropriately to people. Definitely. And I, it just keeps happening. And it's kind of the reason why he succeeds, right? Like he doesn't do anything out of the goodness of his heart. He does it so that he can get his and get the things he wants. Like at the end right. of this movie, he gets, you know, uh, three quarters of a million dollars to his brother who's in prison and gets his brother freed and like outruns the FBI. And When when the FBI comes to him and, and gives him the deal initially and says, you know, work with us and whatever, whatever. And he's like, and what does that leave me with when they're offering him basically the witness protection program? He's like, and what does that leave me with? Like, I'm some nobody in a town with whatever, you know, like, so yeah, like, it's painted as he he bests everyone because he wants to do it by by the books. He wants to follow the law. Right. But really it's because he wants to stay extraordinary. He wants to stay extraordinary. He, and wants, he wants to stay Mitch McDeer. And he's worked too hard to achieve his status as the lawyer that he is to do anything else. Right. He doesn't want to lose his law license. He doesn't want to be disbarred. He doesn't want to not be Mitch McDeer. He wants to remain extraordinary, but it is under the, you know, the guise of, and I do think there is something to this. He said, there's an exchange in the beginning of the movie when um, it's like recreated later in The Wolf of Wall Street when Matthew (laughs) McConaughey and Leonardo DiCaprio go to lunch together. And they're just like. And they're they're having their first like one-on-one. Anyways. It's, uh, you know... They're, they're chest-thumping. Gene, like, Gene so. Hackman <laughs> takes um, Tom Cruise to uh, a white linen tablecloth, piano in the corner, champagne and, uh, you know, martinis in, in the middle of the day, um, banker-lawyer lunch spot in... Memphis. Memphis, <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee. The hottest restaurant in downtown Memphis. Where assuredly lots of mescaline salads are being served (laughs) and um you know again they're in sort of like all of they're in the the drippings of opulence and of privilege and there's an exchange between them when uh avery remarks to mitch he says oh so you're an idealist right right and uh, you know, sort of asking uh, of the com- asking of Mitch, you know, why he's a lawyer and why he does the things that he does, and Mitch gives a reason, and it turns out like they both have a laugh and find out that they're not idealists; they're in it for you know whatever reasons they're right. in it for. But then the whole rest of the movie seeks to prove to us that Mitch is in fact an idealist. An idealist. But really, what we what we understand if we're paying attention and we are a discerning audience is, is it's, that it's not idealism it's not idealism it is. it's not a moral high ground it's that he wants to remain mitch right. mcdeer it's self-preservation and outsmart everyone because that is what he has been doing 
his entire time at Harvard. It's what he's been doing in every conversation he's had with anyone. He wants to still do that. It's the only thing he knows how to do. It's like that scene in Heat with De Niro and Pacino. You are going to find a way to bring up Heat in every single episode that we record of this podcast. And he just says, I don't... I don't think I know how to do anything else, you know? And that's and that's Mitch McDear. That's Mitch McDear. <laughs> I just, I imagine this, like, Sisyphean nightmare of Mitch and Abby going back to Boston and Mitch working for another law firm and it being another, like, front for the mob and him being like, ah, just winding up accidentally working for the mob. But also eating it up because he's, like, so here for it. I think the the other thing I want to talk about with regards to Mitch McDear is something we were talking about earlier today, which is this idea of Mitch, Mitch as a character being a very, you know, flat on paper, but still being an embodiment of this idea of rugged individualism, which this country was founded on and is, you know, really... um, the reason that we are in the late stages of capitalism that we are, but specifically an idea that you alluded to really being prevalent in the 90s because of a lot of politics of, um, you know, Clinton era policy that had to do with education seemingly being more broadly available. Right to the masses, and that being the means by which we achieve accolades and success and privilege. It's the birth of the PMC, the professional managerial class, right? Where I think Clinton even said, right, like something along the lines of uh, what you earn is dependent on what you can learn. And it is that same kind of, uh, of individualism and like bootstrapism and emphasis on on education and being smarter than everybody that came, uh, that reached its apex in the 90s that this movie embodies, right? And that Mitch embodies. That Mitch embodies. He comes from nothing and all of a sudden, like, here, but he's smart, right? He's smarter than everyone. And he uh, is second in his class at Harvard, right? Or maybe he's like, he's in the top five at, at Harvard. And he, they even have a scene where they like do a champagne toast to him uh, passing the bar, and they say, "Well, you didn't get the you didn't get the best score at the bar. You got the second best score." And it's like he's right there at the top. Like he's, he's exceptional. He's, he's exceptional. He's exceptional, and we don't know how he got to Harvard from being utterly destitute, <laughs> but he does. We we assume that he got like a scholarship to we, Harvard Law. We assume he. <laughs> to a really great elementary school and the rest is history because right. that's what Clinton era politics tell us. Totally. He did really, really well on his standardized tests and wrote a very compelling essay on like Catcher in the Rye in, in seventh grade. And made it all the way to the FBI. No, <laughs> made it all the way to Harvard. His dad and probably was a coal miner. Probably. And I think like the the thing that's that's interesting and also troubling about about Mitch McDear as a character being the embodiment of this idea of rugged individualism is that to your earlier point, it's not, this individualism doesn't seek to upend the systems of power and the systems of oppression or cast off the trappings of wealth, right? right? It it doesn't want to, uh, 
to rise above those things or, or to uh, curtail that system in any way. It wants to skyrocket Mitch directly right. into the complete and utter sea of cardigans and shrimp cocktails. Right. And it's the thing that this movie tells us is the end game, right? It's like the goal of life and of success is to not breach the system and, and rise above it and find a new meaning. It is just be the best. It's be the best and actually the thing you want to rise the, shit. the thing you want to rise above is the, you know, haphazardness of who has what to start with, right. right? It's not planned that some people are poor and some people are wealthy. No, no. That's just the way life is. So the only way to make any sense of that is to just say that well, it's possible for you to move past that, to move beyond the things that you came from. It's uh, it's embodied in that meme uh, of of Paris Hilton on a runway, like waving at her adoring fans totally. with, a, with a T-shirt that says "Stop being poor." That's it. That's, that's it. That's the ethos of the '90s. Just just stop, stop being poor. Being poor. <laughs> stop it already. Well, I think that's really it about the movie. Do you want to give a sound off to all of the psychotically white sound off things in this movie? I'm just gonna say, like, I'm not. I will probably leave out at least 50% of them. But this is just like stream of consciousness. Just riffing right now. Just just riffing here. In no particular order. Overstuffed floral sofas and chairs. <laughs> A shaggy dog. Cardigans. Shrimp cocktails. Jazzy bistro pianos. Corduroy jackets. Penny loafers. <laughs> A good tan wool coat. <laughs> Dried floral arrangements, brocade curtains, <laughs> a white picket fence, literally, crunchy fall leaves on a driveway, um, cheese platters. Uh, diving trips to the Grand Caymans. The Grand Caymans. Grand Caymans period. Period. <laughs> uh, white linen tablecloth restaurants, as I said, salads for dinner, a Mercedes Benz. Mercedes Benz. A convertible Mercedes Benz. <laughs> Boxes of files. Uh, dramatic uh, faxing scenes. Copy machines. Copy machines. Copy machines. There is nothing more white and more 90s than an overuse of a copy machine. Uh, early 90s computer interfaces. Where it's like, query, sentence, result. Print mob files. <laughs> Print mob files. <laughs> Enter. Um, yeah, there's a lot more, but... I think that's a pretty good list. It's pretty good. I think that's good. All right, one thing I want to do before uh, we wrap up here is talk about this movie in the context of exactly what it is, which is a Tom Cruise vehicle. In 1990, Roger Ebert wrote a review for Days of Thunder, a.k.a. Top Gun with Cars. Top Gun with Cars. And he alluded to what he calls uh, a... The, the sort of quintessential Tom Cruise picture. And he has eight specific uh, criteria points that uh, are, are a Tom Cruise picture. And Top Gun, he says, is the ultimate example of this. But I wanted to see if this movie presents itself in the same way and in which ways it maybe defies the staples of a classic Tom Cruise picture. I'm game. All right. So number one, the Cruise character. 
invariably a young and naive but naturally talented kid who could be the best if ever he could tame his rambunctious spirit. Check mark. Check. I mean, there's Done. nothing to say about that, right? Number two, here we go. The mentor, an older man who has done it himself and has been there before and knows talent when he sees it, and who has faith in the kid even when the kid screws up because his free spirit has gotten the best check. of him. Gene check, Hackman. check, 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 check. Here we go. Number three, the superior woman, usually older, taller, and more mature than the Cruise character. By the way, everyone is taller than Tom Cruise. Yeah, done. He's like five foot three. <laughs> Who functions as a mentor for his spirit while the male mentor supervises his craft. Yeah. She absolutely does. Jean Triplehorn. Jean Triplehorn. She comes from money. She comes from like more experience. Tom Cruise constantly has shame around feeling like he is uh, preventing her from like reaching her her ultimate form of success because she came she from She comes from else. money, but she's not the same as the money in Memphis that they meet with the firm. Correct. She's different. She's, she's different. She's a different kind of, of money that's not quite that. Uh, number four, the craft which the gifted young man must master. That's lawyering. Yeah, I would argue that the movie situates Tom having largely mastered the craft already. Yeah. Although... He hasn't passed the bar yet until about halfway through the movie. So he learns to pass the bar and then overcomes that, right? That is, to me, more sort of, like, that's semantics, right? That's, sure. like, that's like functional for the purposes of, like, where he is in his life. But also, this uh, thing that happens over the course of the movie and him learning or figuring out how to uh, indict the law firm without breaking the law is I think the ultimate test of his lawyering. You know what? You're actually making me realize this one is 1000% actualized in this movie. And it's summed up at the very end of the movie when he says, I don't know, to Ed Harris or somebody, he says, it's something to the effect of like, you made me have to look at the law. Right. Like really look you at had, the you law. You made me like care about the law again you, you, or something. You like. made me you made me you, you made me follow the law, basically. Yes. In a way he sort of, you know, implies in a way that he hadn't previously. I hadn't done that in years or something, he says, right? Yeah. Well here's here's an interesting kind of uh, I'm gonna put these two together. Number five, the arena in which the young man is tested. And number six, the arcana consisting of the specialized knowledge and lore that the movie knows all about and we get to learn. I would say the arena here is uh, coupled with the arcana, right? The, the specialized knowledge and lore, which is uh, the revelations that the law firm works for the mob. And the arena is Tom figuring out how to best both of those forces. I think that these two are pretty pretty much there. Yeah, I would say so. I think I would actually argue that what they are is different is slightly different from what you're saying. That the arcana is maybe like the lore, I guess, is is bigger than just the firm works for the mob. It's that like the firm is evil. Right. And he has to learn how to like undo a life that they've trapped him in, right? And and break past it. Yeah. Here's a fun one. The the trail, a journey to visit the principal places where the masters of the craft test one another. Kind of. This is like the Grand Caymans. This is kind of like 
Although this is this is I think maybe jettisoned a little bit from from this basic formula because the FBI act as sort of like an impetus for all of this sort of stuff to happen and for him to have to learn. Yeah, they're like a second foe and like propeller to the movie. So I don't I don't I don't quite know if like, like what would even the places be? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're the places of the mind. Or it could be the pl- like the actual places of like the firm's hold, right? Which right. is like the parties, the restaurants, right. the his own home, his own right? home. It's, it's him learning the, the libraries and the right. sort of like you know wood paneled grand rooms. All the places uh, where these vestiges of evil have taken hold. Yep. Yeah. Could be. Maybe. And these two, I'm going to put together as well because these are these are kind of uh, can be talked about together. Number eight, the proto enemy. The bad guy in the opening reels of the movie who provides the hero with an opponent to practice on. At first, the crew's character and the proto-enemy dislike each other, but eventually, through a baptism of fire, they learn to love one another. And then number nine, the eventual enemy. A real bad guy who turns up in the closing reels to provide the hero with a test of his skill, his learning ability, his love, his craft, and his knowledge of the arena and the arcana. I actually don't, I don't know who I would situate in so either of those. So here's the thing is, although he's both, he's also the mentor, I would almost say that, that Avery is the proto-enemy because he's an antagonistic force to a certain extent. Yeah, he is. He's throwing a lot at him. Right. He's like the guy that knows more. He's like testing him a little bit. But there's also this interesting thing too, which is this movie treats the FBI as an antagonizing force as well. I was just Something say to that. be bested. So they kind of become one of the eventual enemies, but also there's a second layer, right? The firm maybe is the proto-enemy, the thing he's trying to, to best and rise above, but is quickly defeated in favor of actually facing and confronting in the final reels the Moralto crime family mm-hmm. and going and talking to uh, our, our friends who play mobsters in literally every movie. I, so what, I, are, I the, what is, are the two definitions again? The proto-enemy is the bad guy in the opening reels of the movie, and then through a baptism of fire, they learn to love one another. This is this is your Iceman, right? Right, right. It's and not then, it's not a it's not a cookie cutter no. Top Gun situation. And then the eventual enemy is the real bad guy who shows up in the closing reels, who, who could maybe be, uh, you know, like Wilford Brimley and Tobin Bell, who could be the the crime family. But there's so many antagonizing forces here that I don't think it falls succinctly and easily into these two categories. I think the proto enemy, if we had to pick one, would probably be Gene Hackman. I think he's the one that loosely assembles right. into the notches that they're saying here of like kind of being antagonizing in the beginning and in the end. The two of them don't face off. Right, but he does become a sympathetic character. He does become a th- sympathetic character, and they face off in terms of, like, their actions are antagonistic toward each other, and they sort of, like, reconcile to a certain degree. Right. So he's both the mentor and the proto-enemy in so a certain then, sense. But then the eventual enemy... I don't I don't, know. I don't there, know. There are too many antagonizing forces. This movie is really, like, Tom Cruise against the world. It absolutely is. It is. I mean, like a lot of his movies it's, are, but it's Tom Cruise against the it's world. It's precisely what I said. It is It is really a vehicle to showcase how extraordinary he is. Everyone is an antagonist and everyone is somebody simply getting in the way of Tom Cruise's excellence, including the law enforcement officials. Mm-hmm. So if we're, you know, looking at it through the lens of the current climate, this movie is also saying ACAB, I think. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Uh... 
I think that's really all I've got about this movie. Do you have? I anything mean, else? I could do seventeen. We episodes could talk about of, this movie for the next couple hours. One thing I want to do before we close out here and just wrap up, I want to give a little bit of uh, of love to Joel Schumacher, who passed away this week. Excellent filmmaker from the 1990s. I guess the actual quality of his films is often debated, but he is the director of St. Almost Fire and The Lost Boys in the 80s. He did two John Grisham adaptations in the 90s, The Client and A Time to Kill, which we are definitely doing for this show at some point. Um, and he did Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. He did Flatliners. He did Falling Down with Michael Douglas, mm, one of like Michael Douglas's so best good. performances. Um, he did Phone Booth like in, in the aughts as well with Colin Farrell and Kiefer Sutherland. He embodies this level of just kind of fearlessness and shtick when it comes to uh, the excesses of his movies in a, in a Hollywood blockbuster that a lot of people will never do again. Like you look at like the seriousness and kind of like the sort of like gray palette of a Marvel movie and compare that to like a Batman Forever with like Tommy Lee Jones and with Jim Carrey, regardless of what the critics say about it and the actual quality of the movie, it has a very distinct vision and it just pops. The thing that I think we can say about 90s movies, and I would say this of a lot of Joel Schumacher's work as well, is that the 90s, for all the reasons we've already discussed, were a time when you know we weren't quite at this level of cynicism and... Um, you know, fuck the man and take the red pill and just like bleakness that, you know, we eventually got to at the end of the 90s and in the early aughts, post 9-11. And so movies were different. Like the things that we were after out of a movie, um, even the ones that, you know, were high art at the time, like a Schindler's List, right? Mm -hmm. High art for the masses is that they had to be entertaining. They had to be entertaining and they had to be a romp, even if they were dark to a certain extent. Absolutely. And even if it was just like so much excess. And even if it was so much excess. And I think like it's easy to look back on the movies of the 90s and be like, those are corny, those are cheesy, whatever. We're only saying that now because it's 20 years later, 20 plus years later, and a whole, you know slew of genres and perspectives and experiences have popped up in terms of the cinema and like the cinematic approach to to telling a story and what stories are told absolutely but those things weren't there in the 90s right those were not as prevalent as they are now and that muscle hadn't been built up enough and so yeah like saint elmo's fire is a really really beautiful movie and also wholly entertaining all of his movies are incredibly entertaining even when they're just like in abundance of of things i'm gonna give rob harvia from the ringer the last word on joel schumacher he wrote an excellent obit uh we might end up linking this in the episode description uh, later on if we want to. But I'm just going to read the last couple lines here. He's talking specifically about A Time to Kill, but about Schumacher in general and says, It's a lot. It's so much. It's exactly right. It was never enough. They don't make movies like it anymore. Not at that scale. Not with that multiplex bombarding fearlessness. And now there's one less fearless guy around who could even conceivably make them. So RIP to Joel Schumacher. You will be missed. Rest in power, Joel Schumacher. Rest in Schumacher. power. Um, and I think that's it from us today. 
our first episode wrapped up in the can. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. We're on Twitter. And uh, we'll be uh, giving you more of these while we're here in quarantine and beyond. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Got me some roses and a little bling I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green I'm getting closer Getting closer To my little queen